This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Elizabeth McCracken. She is the author of five books, including the novels The Giant's House and Niagara Falls All Over Again, and a memoir entitled An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination. McCracken also holds the James A. Michener Chair in Fiction at the University of Texas, Austin. Her newest work is a collection of short stories entitled Thunderstruck and Other Stories. The collection includes nine stories, many of which focus on loss, disappearance, death, murder, and missing people. We began the interview talking about why McCracken returned to the short story after 20 years of writing longer works. In the acknowledgments, she offered thanks to an editor for asking the right question at the right time, which inspired her return to the short form. I've been working on a novel for a really long time and in a lot of different places. I'd moved around a lot, and I ended up in Paris where it sort of fell apart. And I think maybe the day that I realized that the novel was not going to pan out, I got an email from Michael Ray, who's the um, the editor of the Zoe Triple story, and he said, he asked me if I had any stories. And I didn't, but I had... I sort of could see that I could carve a piece of the novel out. Um, and I said, give, give me a few days. <laughs> and uh, and I worked really hard on the piece. I, it had been third person. I changed to first person um, and, and tried to get back into a short story writer's brain, um, which I hadn't been in for a really long time. And, uh, and he, he took the story much to my surprise and amazement and gratitude because I had, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible feeling having a novel fail. It felt, it felt quite catastrophic and having been given a task to do in the wake of that was amazing. And then he's published a whole bunch of other, other stories and, uh, um, and it's, it's been great. And it, it really did get me back into writing short stories. There's one, one older story in the collection, um, and then the the next uh, the next one is a piece from that novel. You're a writing teacher, so you deal with manuscripts in process all the time. So, what makes you definitively say that a novel can't work? Isn't that what revision is for? How did you know that? I can I can talk about it both in terms of my novel and also as a writing teacher. For my novel, the problems were really structural. And I had been working on it for a long time. I was many drafts in. And I suddenly, it became clear that no matter how I fiddled with the book, it was, it was, not, it was not structurally sound, really. And at one point I said to my agent, who is one of my most important readers, and I said, so if I really work and I get this book right, do you think it's going to be a wonderful book or do you think it's just going to be a good book? And he said he thought it would just be a good book. And that's when I sort of knew that. I feel like if I was a hugely prolific writer, then maybe I could publish some books that I didn't think were as good as the other ones. Well, no, that's not fair. That sounds horrible. Um, I, I feel like I just, because I, because I don't write enough books, I, the idea of publishing one, of moving on by publishing a book 
that I couldn't get right just sounded too heartbreaking to me. And what about as a writing teacher? I have dissuaded some students from continuing on novels, and I can say they have always written really terrific and successful novels afterwards. There is a certain relationship to some to work that people have when they've been working on it for too long. And it is that sort of need to try to get it right, but not to make it great. So, you know, to make it work, but not to feel like you were writing the, the best book that you could then. And I've had a lot of talented writers who are, you know, holding, holding novels tight, but they've been working on them for so long that they had improved as writers and were no longer the same writer they were when they came up with the idea for the book. And so they were actually being being constrained by the earlier versions of their of their own abilities. And one of the things I say from having walked walked away from, from books is that at first you think it seems like the most horrible thing in the world. It's like admitting defeat. And then you it makes you feel tough. And you just you sort of you, you, you can become impressed with yourself from being able to just sort of shake it off. So for people who who aren't writers and don't know that much about it, it's such a it could seem like such a vague concept when you say that a a novel you were working on didn't work. How would you explain that to someone who isn't a writer? Why something doesn't work? You know, I think it's probably like any relationship in that it's it's hard it's hard to say. And some of us stick in relationships with with either books in my case, or with people, and the minute you quit it, you think, oh, my God, how did I not see how wrong that was going? How could I not see that all of the time I was pouring into this, I wasn't actually making it better? Um, and, and I do think it's that, I think it's possible to fall out of love with a project, and when the characters no longer interest you, or it doesn't seem like something different could happen in the plot, then you know that that you can't you can't work anymore on the book, and sometimes for me that comes happily sort of at, when the book is 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 finished and working. But if it comes in the middle of something that I'm I'm working on, because I I write I write way too much that never sees the light of day, um, and I wrote you know a, a bunch of stories in the same time period that didn't make it into this collection, and I've gotten very good at not being sentimental about about work. So you said at the time, you know, when when this editor from Zotrope came to you, you hadn't really written short stories for a while and you hadn't really thought about them. So what do you engage in your creative life and your craft that's different for a novel versus a short story? Um, well, gosh, it's a, it's a, I sort of feel like when I wrote my first collection of short stories, I had no idea of how hard it was to write a good short story. And the older I got, the more I realized that the short stories I really loved, I wasn't sure whether, and I still think I'm not capable of writing the kind of short stories that I, when I think of my, my short story idols. But it has more to do, it's much more elliptical. Um, I feel like missteps and digressions are much more visible in short stories, so I have to be much less indulgent as a writer. 
I like novels because you really can just put, you know, a giant list of paintings in a room in a novel, and, and it's world-building. But short stories have, have, have less room to natter on, or at least I, I tell myself you can do that in a novel. I mean, it does sort of feel like the difference between a sprint and a marathon in that I'm much more aware of having to make every sentence work in a short story. Or in a novel, I think, you know, if I tried to make every short, every sentence work, then I would exhaust myself and the reader by the end of it. I, I feel like my more recent short stories, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm much more interested in event as opposed to time. I'm inter- when I write longer pieces, I'm really interested in time passing, and in short stories, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of more interested in, in thinking about what, what events mean to characters. I don't know if that makes sense. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elizabeth McCracken, author of the short story collection, Thunderstruck. Your collection has nine stories, and many of them are about loss and mourning and disappearances and death. And I also noticed you use the word ghost and the concept of a ghost in some of these tales. Tell me more about that. Yeah, as a kid, I was always, like like most kids, obsessed by ghosts. I had a big collection of New England ghost stories that I loved and um, loved reading about Houdini and his obsession with seances. And, and in fact, I was, I was sort of much more interested in fake ghosts than in real ghosts. That is, I was really interested in people who, who held seances and ripped up lights and pieces of fabric to convince people that they were, uh, you know, that they were actually conjuring ghosts. And I, I think as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm very interested in, in why it would be comforting to hear a voice from the other side. As a child, I thought, why, well, why would you want to talk to dead people? But, you know, that, that the notion of somebody's spirit going on seemed yeah, an, an entirely abstract idea to me. And as I've gotten older, it seems compelling. I, I, I understand how you could trick yourself into going to a seance and, and believing in ghosts. And I, so I feel like the ghost story I would have written as a younger person is much different from the ghost stories that I'm writing now. And the, the story that there's an actual ghost in is, I think, very much inspired by my early obsession with ghosts and stories of ghosts that get handed around groups of children. But I wanted to, to get at the personal side of it as well. And what about the sense of loss? You know, there's a lot of loss in these stories. Yeah, I have to. I have to admit that it was not until I'd finished pulling together the book that I realized how unbelievably depressing and and riddled with with death and injury the stories were. And I don't know. I mean, I I I, I guess it's partly getting older. Some of these stories are the 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 work that I wrote after my first child was stillborn, so I very much had a loss on the brain. So for some reason it's always been something that I've that I've written about. And I also think, you know, I've got I've got two kids and there is nothing like having children to make you absolutely terrified about the world's possibilities. And a couple of people have recently said to me that they've read the book and it's made them nervous 
people without children that made them nervous about having children. And I've had to say, oh, I'm fine. I, I love having children, and I don't, I don't spend my days being convinced that terrible things are going to happen to them. I think partly because I put that into my stories. So like I, I'm, in my day-to-day life, I'm not an enormously neurotic person. So I think I put all of my neuroses directly into my fiction, and then they're sort of taken care of. I noticed that amidst the loss and mourning, there are some sublime moments in your work. One in particular I'm thinking of is your story called Something Amazing. The plot of this involves a woman utterly transformed by grief. The neighborhood kids remember her as a young mother carpooling her daughter around, and then her daughter dies and she turns into a reclusive old woman. Her house is considered haunted. Then one of the neighborhood kids runs away into her house, and at the end she gives him a bath because he is filthy. This was a really tender, transcendent, sublime moment, and I'm wondering if you thought about the effect of that when you were writing. I don't, I don't think about it, though. I, which is why I think I was like, I gotta look up sublime because I like my stories to be sublime, but but I think if I tried to put it in, then it would seem false, or at least it would seem false to me. I'm certainly always interested. As both a writer and a reader, I really like contrast and reversal and opposite, so that at moments when things look darkest, I like jokes. At times when something brutal is happening in a story, um, I like some tenderness. I just I, I love the way opposite emotions in fiction can magnify each other. And even though the stories are full of death and, and, and injury and unhappiness. I'm always very aware, at least in my own life, that when terrible things are happening, it's never the entire story. But I guess I'm interested in trying to write something that tries to, that tries to depict that, that tries to get at the fact that, that we know one of the difficult things about life is that it doesn't just let, leave you alone in your sorrow and difficulty, which is also one of the wonderful things about life. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elizabeth McCracken, author of the short story collection, Thunderstruck. Well, I want to talk about some of these stories specifically. I just opened up to the Lost and Found Department of Greater Boston and talking about opposites or playing on some of the characters The main character here, Karen Blackbird, well, she's not really the main character, but she's the main character's mother, disappears. And her son, Asher, was living with her and the grandfather. So she disappears, and he's left on his own, and he's a young teenager. And he lives with his grandfather, and he gets caught shoplifting at the grocery store, and he is shoplifting pizza. And the guy who runs the grocery store ends up calling the police and having him arrested. But he was actually really starving because his grandfather had died and he had no money and he had no food. But the whole time, this store manager thinks that he did this amazing deed and saved this child. And he goes back to find him 10 years later, only to find out that the child is really upset with him. Tell me a little bit more about your thoughts about this and maybe what generated this story in you and the experience of thinking one thing and then what that means for your life when you just find out everything you thought might be wrong. 
that story was is sort of the boiled down plot line of the novel that it came out of. And the Hilo manager was a small character in the novel. And when I turned it into a story, he became sort of the structure that runs that runs through the story. And so the ending where he comes to the to the house and finds out that Asher Blackbird is not happy that um that he'd been uh, rescued is is the newest part of that short story. And I I'm trying to remember because right now what it mostly seems like is like one of the meanest things that happens in the entire book, which I'm I'm. I'm I'm kind of interested in what what happens when you when you think you've done the right thing, but you've been motivated as the Hilo manager is throughout it. You've been motivated by sort of strange narcissistic reasons. You know everything he does he does because he's trying to convince himself that he's a good person, and he works up this really peculiar narrative about his own life that he comes to believe in. One of the things that I was partly interested in which is something that, that happens in a couple of the stories, is how neighborhoods react to news stories and how people find it a sort of intolerable condition not to be at the center of a story. And that when something terrible happens in the neighborhood, everybody sort of rushes to figure out what part they have to play in the narrative, which always strikes me as being a very dangerous game to play. And there's another short story in the collection that's about a murder that uh, that happened in the city where I was working as a public librarian, and the idea for for the novel that the Lost and Found uh, Department of Greater Boston came out of, the very start of it was based on these kids who were found digging through garbage outside um, a house and were rescued by neighbors. And the big question at the time, I think this was, I can't remember what year this. This happened in the early 2000s. The big question was, how on earth did the neighbors not notice that these children were starving to death in front of their eyes? And I was so compelled by that question that I started to try to write about the the neighborhood after a kid was discovered starving. And the 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 Hilo manager, I guess, ended up taking taking on every terrible habit I feel like I have myself about wanting to poke my nose into other people's business. So is it hard for you if someone comes up to you and says, should I buy your book or take it out of the library? <laughs> oh, I always say take it out of the library. <laughs> and it's not just because, of course, you know, the library has bought the book, so it's fine. But in many ways, you know, a, a copy of a book in a library, more immortality than a single person buying a book. And I also happen to know because I was a circulation librarian, the way that books get Weeded from collections is if they don't go out. So I'm really, really emotionally invested in people taking my books out from the library because I want them to stay on the shelves. So I want them to circulate well. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? But I wanted to read some Carson McCullers from The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Now some explanation is due for all this behavior. The time has come to speak about love. For Miss Amelia loved Cousin Lyman. So much was clear to everyone. They lived in the same house together and were never seen apart. Therefore, according to Mrs. McPhail, a warty-nosed old busybody who is continually moving his sticks of furniture from one part of the room, front room to another, according to her, to certain others, 
these two were living in sin. If they were related, they were only a cross between first and second cousins, and even that could in no way be proved. Now, of course, Miss Amelia was a powerful blunderbuss of a person, more than six feet tall, and Cousin Lyman a weakly little hunchback reaching only to her waist. But so much the better for Mrs. Stumpy McPhail and her cronies, for they and their kind glory and conjunction, which are ill-matched and pitiful. So let them be. The good people thought that if those two had found some satisfaction of the flesh between themselves, then it was a matter concerning them and God alone. All sensible people agreed in their opinion about this conjecture, and their answer was a plain, flat no. What sort of thing, then, was this love? So why did you choose this? I've always really loved McCullers. She was somebody who I read when I was in graduate school, and I feel like anybody I read in graduate school, I just remember the feeling of sitting in the horrible orange chair that I was the sole piece of furniture in my living room. Yeah, we were talking about opposites, and McCullers is all about opposites, but especially the Ballad of the Sad Cafe, which was about the six foot tall Miss uh, Amelia and her and her her tiny uh, hunchback cousin, cousin Lyman. And I also love the strangeness of the narrator, and which just says now some explanation is due for all this behavior. The time has come to speak about love. And I I love how confident McCullers is in saying the time has come to speak about love. And she does that a lot. She just announces that, that she's going to talk about love. And the passage that follows this is all about the state of being either the beloved or the lover. And uh, and I've, I've got such a, I've got a, a weakness for love talk in, in fiction, which I, I think I probably picked up from McCullers. Can you read something that you wrote? It could have been something that was hard or tricky or something that changed from the first draft, or something you succeeded at? This is a passage from the first story in the collection, which is called Something Amazing. The soul is liquid and slow to evaporate. The body is a bucket and liable to slosh. Grieving, haunted, heartbroken, obsessed, your friends will tell you to cheer up. What they really mean is dry up. It isn't a matter of will. Only time and light will do the job. Who wants to, anyhow? Best keep in the dark and nurse the damp. Cover the mirrors, keep the radio switched off, avoid the newspaper, the television, the whole outdoors, anywhere little girls congregate, where the world is manufacturing them hand over fist, though there are now, it seems, more little girls living in the world than any other variety of human being. Or middle-aged men whose pants don't fit or infant boys, or young women with wide, sympathetic, fretful foreheads. Whatever you have lost, there are more of, just not yours. Sneeze, itch, gasp for breath, feel the windows, replace the sheets, then the mattresses, pry the mercury from your teeth, buy appliances to scrub the air. Even then, the smell of the detergent from the sheets will fall into your nose. The chill of your nice son cooks will visit you in the bedroom. The sweat from his clothes when he runs home from high school. The fog of his big yopping shoes. The awful smell of batteries loaded into a remote control. Car exhaust. The plastic bristles on your toothbrush. The salt air smell of baking soda once you give toothpaste. Make your house as safe and airtight as possible. Filter the air. Boil the water. The rash is day. The wheezing gets worse. What you are allergic to can walk through walls. 
And so tell me why you chose this one. And that's one of the oldest pieces of the book. And I was really taken with the idea of trying to write about what it felt like to be heartbroken and people's impatience with that. The, the main character in that story, um, the mother of a, a little girl who has died, is trying constantly to, to, to explain her heartbreak in terms of external problems, that she's, that she's allergic to everything. They, you know, they sort of rip everything out of the house because she sort of can't, she can't give up her sorrow and, and people are telling her that it's time to move on. And I wanted to spend a lot of time on that passage and it appeared, I think it, I probably put it in several different things um, until I found the right space for it. Um, and it, it began with that, the, the first two lines of the passage, particularly the line, the body's a bucket. And for a while I was even, I thought I was going to title the collection The Body's a Bucket, but I was talked out of it. Probably a good idea. I turned it. I turned that passage over for a long time, and really often when I turn a passage over a long time, it's the last thing that comes out of a book. But I've been I've been trying to make it work in something because I'm sentimental about it. I get terribly um, indulgently sentimental about sentences that I like, even when they don't make any sense in the book whatsoever. And so I think I'm, among other things, I'm just happy that this survived the publication. It's interesting that you had a passage that you were sort of shopping around for a home. I do that a lot. It's more common for me to do it with sentences, and it's one of the reasons why I just don't believe in the advice, kill your darlings. I'm always just trying to find my darlings a different home. Where do you write? These days, I write almost entirely in my office on campus at the University of Texas. It's a nice office with a lot of bookshelves and and very few distractions. And if I write at home, I'm much more likely to go wandering looking for company. And here I, I, I stay in my office. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? If I'm writing well, then I'm sort of writing in my head all the time. But I do have little kids and probably to them that that spending time with them is so immediate and entertaining and feels like it's, it's really got nothing to do with my work. And who do you show you work to first to get feedback? That's another thing that's changed a lot over the years in that um, early on I wanted, I wanted um, people to assure me that I was, I was doing it right. And as I've gotten older, I, every writer I know has uh, what's get back to the sense of privacy that they had when they were working on their first book. And so now I don't show it to anybody for a really long time, not because I'm more confident, but because I want to try to make it as private as possible for a while. And then then once I've gotten something relatively finished, I show it to, I show it to my husband, Edward Carey, who is a writer, um, or to my friend, Ann Patchett, or to Paul, my friend, Paul Lipsicki. And my, my agent, Henry Dunow, is somebody who sees my work very early as well. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, I feel like I, I deal with it um, badly at first and then well, in which that I get very sulky, but I have inherited from my mother 
a wonderfully bad memory for unhappiness. So I don't brood, but I or I brood for half an hour, and then I forget about it. And what is your favorite word? I've thought long and hard about this, and I believe it's eponymous. It's one of my favorites anyhow. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Elizabeth McCracken, author of the short story collection, Thunderstruck. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.